The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at standingstonesupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Now, sometimes you do hear these stories and, and you can see videos of, you know, you're going down the trail and, and you look ahead and there's a wolf on the trail. That wolf is looking at you and you're looking at it. And it can be kind of an unnerving event, right? <laughs> but in many times, this is actually more an act of curiosity from wolves than it is, you know, it, it's perceived by us often as kind of a, a stare down, if you will. Why does it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood grain on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. This week we are talking everything wolves, and I have the Wisconsin large carnivore specialist for the DNR, Randy Johnson. Randy, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm good. And I got to start off with a corny joke because your name is Randy Johnson. You have the legendary pitcher, and of course, as a bird hunter, we always kind of see the annual uh, reminder of when he just blasted the bird going across pitcher's mound. How often do you get to get reference to the to the legendary Randy Johnson? Very commonly, especially growing up, all the time. My my joke is I'm I'm not left-handed, so I, I can't be him. <laughs> so there's that. But if yeah. if only I was left-handed, maybe I'd be a uh, in a different career field and uh <laughs> <laughs> well as, aside, better. <laughs> aside from not throwing a baseball with the correct hand and and missing out on millions potentially what uh <laughs> to to kind of introduce yourself walk us back you know what led you to uh being a large carnivore specialist for the state of wisconsin yeah sure no thanks again for having me on i appreciate the the invite 
Um, so large carnivore specialist for the Wisconsin DNR, Department of Natural Resources. So what does that mean? My position here in our Bureau of Wildlife Management. So I'm focused on the management of black bear, uh, wolves, and the occasional cougar that comes through our state, those three species. And it ranges from, you know, working on management plans, implementing those management plans, uh, setting up the hunting seasons and working with our stakeholder groups and partners, and then uh, a lot of outreach and communications and things like that. So that in a nutshell is is what I'm doing currently, um, how I got here. Uh, like many people in this field or, or certainly listening to the to the show, you grew up hunting, fishing, trapping, all the the outdoor things and that's kind of where the, the the interest and desire starts from, right? Through high school, uh, went to college at South Dakota State University uh, for an undergrad bachelor's degree, uh, wildlife and fisheries. Did a bunch of different projects and technician uh, jobs, things like that. Got into grad school, uh, working on a mountain lion project where I got to spend a couple of years basically live trapping and collaring cougars in, in Western North Dakota. And that's where I think the, the, the real seed for the carnivore side of things was planted for me was, you know, kind of a realization I'd worked on deer projects, turkey projects, waterfall, whatever. And a lot of those species we've studied and we know, you know, we know a lot about them, right? And there's still work to be done for sure, but it's really the carnivores that to me kind of represent the new frontier of, of wildlife, wildlife management, and for people, you know, learning how to live with these animals and share space with them. And there's a lot of unknown. And I think there's a lot to, you know, long way to go, if you will. And so to me, that was uh, the more exciting uh, frontier in, in wildlife management. So got hired on after grad school with South Dakota uh, Game Fish and Parks, spent a few years out there as a wildlife biologist. Uh, and then uh, ended up with the position here in Wisconsin. So been here for three years, love the position, love what I'm doing, um, and, and love where I live, northern Wisconsin. It's it's lake and tree country, lots of public land. It's it's a great fit. So happy to be here. Well, you know, if, if you went to South Dakota State, you now live in Wisconsin. Obviously, the carnivore kind of captivated you and, and held your attention. But is there any kind of history or passion for upland birds or upland hunting in general at all? You know, I always, I grew up in Minnesota. And so we had pheasants literally out our back door. And so we we grew up dorking around chasing pheasants a little bit. I, I really uh, did not grow up in a dog family. So for me, it was either hunting with with friends or uncles or cousins that had dogs or or just beating the bush by myself and trying to get them to flush. And and so it was always on the radar, but it was for me personally, it was always a little bit farther down the list. I, I, I loved waterfall hunting, lots of deer hunting, the trapping, the fishing. I, I'm kind of the, 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 what's the cliche, uh, jack of all trades, but master of none. This <laughs> fits well, uh, like to dabble in all those things. The, gen- the generalist rather than the specialist. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a lot of that within me, even within the upland ranks, you know, it's just like, I have what I enjoy doing, but I also love kind of exploring and testing out a whole bunch of different corners of the upland space, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, you know, obviously we're, we're going to kind of break down wolves and the interaction between wolves and, and the considerations that dog owners uh, and handlers should really kind of be aware of. But as you kind of just touched on lightly is, as you manage much more than just wolves, you do bears and cougars as well. So I kind of, I'm curious in the state of Wisconsin, you know, kind of 
put the hierarchy in terms of the carnivore, you know, pyramid or, or the 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 chain, if you will, the food chain on, you know, what's what's the most prevalent carnivores you deal with? It might be the wolves, but you know, are our dog owners and handlers kind of coming across bears pretty often, or the occasional cougar, cougar like you reference as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have we have a ton of black bear in the state. Our our model suggests twenty five, twenty six thousand. They cover darn near two thirds of the state from from north to to south, and so lots of black bear. Um, and and they're definitely on people's radar, but because we have so many of them and because they've they've always been here they were never extirpated as were wolves and cougar which we'll get to um they 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 kind of represent the they've always been here right and it changes people's attitudes towards them um so especially those that have been living in northern wisconsin for a long time you know bears are just part of the landscape people kind of they're in their their groove they know what to do they know how to 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 uh, live with bears and so we we see some conflicts but not terribly many on the the dog side of things, if you will. Um, a lot of that conflict is more agriculture or the dumpsters and the bird feeders and things like that. The typical what we call nuisance uh, conflicts. Um, wolves, we have many fewer of them. Uh, they're lower density species just by nature, but they actually share and occupy much of the same area of the state. And so we've got about a thousand wolves in this state, uh, but they generate way more buzz positive, negative, and everything in between. Um, so we can get into that, particularly from the dog hunting side of it. You know, when we're talking about hunting with dogs, wolves is, is kind of the, the forefront of the mind um, yeah. for many people. Uh, and then cougar, just to put them kind of in relation here, cougars were native here, same as these other couple of species, um, but they were extirpated and were, were actually probably similar to Tennessee, where we see occasional cougars coming through the state. But no evidence of a, a breeding population or a female or anything like that. We get some transients from from the Dakotas that come through, um, but but we have no evidence of a population yet. So interestingly enough, because they are kind of the new kid on the block, if you will, it seems to me that people are most, uh, it, it causes a disproportionate kind of interest, right? Buzz when we get a cougar that comes through uh, because again, we don't have the recent history of them People aren't sure what's going on. It's the new kid on the block always generates the most buzz, if you will. And that's what we see, too. It's like, look, look who's moving in over here. And then, yeah, you know, to your point, similar to Tennessee, every time you get one just kind of passing through, all of a sudden the social media buzz and Facebook, it's, you know, cougar in the backyard, cougar in the backyard. But uh, <laughs> here lately this summer, I've, I haven't seen uh, an example of that recently, especially this year, but the black bears are really spreading down here in, in Tennessee. You know, they've always been here just kind of what you described up in Wisconsin, but they seem their range seems to be kind of growing westward and, and south, southern. It's just a lot of areas that you kind of always heard of rumors of them being in the area. Now it's it's touching on, you know, cell phone cameras are everywhere. Uh, game cameras are everywhere. And all of a sudden you have bears popping up in places to where people, you know, a year or two ago were swearing, you know, there would never be bears here again. Well, they're, they're there now. <laughs> yep. hundred percent. That's, that's the same pattern that's playing out really all across the Eastern U S we've got bear populations that are healthy, expanding. Missouri is a good example. They just had their first bear season here. I think last year or two years ago, there's other States that are contemplating bear seasons and just, just this pattern of, of, 
bear populations spreading uh, back out across the landscape, finding habitat, making a living. And and with that comes the challenge then of exactly as you described, people that have not lived with bears before, um, you know, what's this all about? What do we do now? You know, and, and so that's that's a big part of our work here too for the southern part of the state where we have bears popping up and, you know, starting to take up residence in some of these places. So we do a lot of outreach, a lot of communications and just share with people, you know, this is this is what this looks like. Well, and, and to the wolves, I'm kind of interested. Do you think to kind of piggyback off your your previous point of they they were there historically, then they were extirpated, they they were gone, then they were reintroduced. Uh, do you think? Do you really think that the public's perception or response to wolves would be different than what you have now if they were around the entire time? If they never were extirpated and people were just used to them? Or is it just kind of, you know, people are just frustrated that, you know, we had the problem solved, so quote unquote, now, now look what's happening. You know, what's your thought process and when it comes to that? Yeah, no, I, I totally think if they would have remained on the landscape throughout, I think it would be a little bit different story. You know, the way I frame it for, for Wisconsin, we've gone from zero wolves, you know, all the way, they were extirpated, basically gone by the early 1900s. We went several decades with no wolves on the landscape, except maybe the, the random disperser coming through, right? Whatever. No functional population, no packs. By the 60s, the 70s, it's like, okay, there's more and more rumors of individual wolves around. And in the early 70s, a pack established, and then another, and then another. And by the 1980s, we started to have you know a handful of packs here, there, 25, 30 total animals living in these you know small packs of three or four wolves. And to go from that in the 1980s to today, where we've got several hundred packs and maybe some thousand wolves that have, you know, basically recolonized all of the available habitat in the state, that's happened in 40 years. And when you stop and think about that, it's it's pretty remarkable to go from no wolves to saturated habitat in 40 years. That's, you know, less than one human lifetime. So we've got folks, you know, that grew up in a quote unquote wolfless Wisconsin that now have, you know, lived through this entire recovery from the hunter's perspective, especially the dog hunters and the hound hunters, you know, they're, they grew up, many of them in this world with few wolves or no wolves, their dads and grandparents and, and, and all of the hunting folks that they, they grew up around didn't have wolves on the landscape. And now it's hard to find a place in many cases without them. And that's a very distinct change, very profound change in a matter of a few decades. And I think that is absolutely part of kind of the, the, the human dimensions, if you will, that surrounds this issue. And then just getting people and public in general to just kind of readjust their perceptions and their lifestyles and their choices and, and all that stuff to, you know, again, they're, they're used to not having to worry about it or live with them to now all of a sudden, oh, this is a consideration that, that popped back up and, and you have to adjust to it. You know, it's not like you're going to go out there and, and, and go wipe them out again. But for, for those of us, myself included, I, I've never lived in a place uh, that, that has a wolf population. You know, it's like I have coyotes down here, but they're, they're you know, while they're both canids, they they're drastically different more so than just their size you know just how they can kind of interact and and react and i've kind of nerded out in in previous years reading dan flores's coyote america and and you kind of get a little bit of a crossover like well why was baiting successful against wolves and not coyotes 
but it's like wolves are just kind of their separate beasts. They kind of come with a, a certain level of uh, mystique with them, if you will. And so kind of touch on the wolves just as a general species, like kind of overview their size, their home range, their primary food sources and, and stuff like that. How do they interact within the pack? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about gray wolves. Gray wolves are basically the same species from you know, all across North America and really into, you know, the Northern Hemisphere, right? All around the world. There's different subspecies and and there's folks out there that will, you know, spent a career arguing over subspecies and different genetics. And I, I, I don't have time for that. <laughs> They're gray wolves right. uh, for our purposes. Um, so if we're talking about wolves in Yellowstone, wolves in Alaska, Canada, Wisconsin, Great Lakes area, we're talking about the same thing. Now, there are some differences uh, we'll start with size, for example. Um, you know, wolves in Wisconsin are part of the, what are called the, the Western Great Lakes regional population. So the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and then this population extends into Ontario and Canada and beyond. So we're kind of this southern lobe, if you will, of a much larger population. And these wolves cross these state lines. I mean, it's almost unbelievable getting collars on some of these animals, how far they can disperse across state lines, across the international lines. So there's definitely flow between all these populations. Um, but kind of comparing the Great Lakes wolves uh, to some of the Western, you know, Idaho, Montana, Yellowstone, um, which, you know, oftentimes those wolves get the more most attention, right? Even though we've got some 4,000 wolves in the Great Lakes area, compared to the Northern Rocky, you know, Idaho, Montana, we're talking maybe a couple thousand. Um, generally speaking, our wolves here live in smaller packs. They're a little bit smaller body size compared to out West, um, largely driven by the prey. Out West, they're taking elk, they're taking uh, bison in some cases, but primarily elk, uh, obviously some deer as well, but here it's primarily white-tailed deer. And so our pack size here, typically, the pack itself is is a breeding pair of wolves with this year's pups and oftentimes a handful of uh, last year's pups. Those sub-adults, they'll hang around and help for a while before they disperse. So that's kind of the general pack structure, uh, the breeding pair pups and some of last year's pups. And uh, we see these average pack sizes of about four wolves in the, in the summer with the pups, you know, that can go up to six, eight, nine, ten wolves even. But through dispersal, through loss of pups, you know, back in the wintertime, we see four wolves as a very common pack size compared to, again, out west where you're seeing uh, average pack sizes, seven, eight, nine wolves, you know, just on average bigger because, again, they're taking down larger prey. Um, the actual size of our wolves, I think, is often surprising to people, too. Um, there, there's differences between the males and females, but on average, if you, if you pluck a wolf off the Wisconsin landscape and, and weigh it, it's most likely going to be between about 55 and 75 pounds. Um, the females usually on the lower end, the males are a little bit bigger. We've, we've had a few approach a hundred pounds in the state. Um, certainly a, a 95 pound wolf with a full belly is going to be over a hundred, but that hundred pounds is kind of the top end. Whereas if you go out West, again, they're routinely 100, 120, uh, maybe even a little more. Again, just driven by just some some physical differences, um, even though they're the same species. 
Um, but you know, when you think about it, I mean, who doesn't have a, a, a chunky lab at home or something that's, you know, 75, 80 pounds. And you're thinking, huh, the wolf is that big, huh? Well, th- the difference is wolves are very tall. They're very lanky. They're muscular. They're built to run. They're built to be on their feet. That's what they do. So they're very, you know, narrow, skinny body. They're muscular, obviously, um, but they're not carrying around a bunch of bulk. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're tall, they've got those long legs, big feet, etc. So on that bigger frame, they're carrying, you know, uh, the muscle and, but, but they're, if you weigh them, they're obviously not, uh, maybe as heavy or, or big as yeah. kind of comes to mind. Um, yeah. so yeah, they're living in these packs. These packs have, uh, they're very territorial animals. They've got an exclusive home range that they defend against other wolves, other canines, etc. So if you want to call it a, a home range, a territory, um, pick your word, um, but they defend these territories and these boundaries, typically they'll use, um, oftentimes it's a river or a road or some kind of feature that creates a, a nice clear boundary. Um, and like I said, they'll readily defend it from other, uh, wolves, other canines, um, so they'll actually use landmarks and everything to kind of stretch out their home range. They're not just going to go randomly, you know, pick a line of trees in the middle of a, a of a dense forest and just be like, ah, you know, we're good here. They're they're going to kind of go until there's some kind of objective to cross, so to speak. Oftentimes, oftentimes, yep, yep. And then they'll there there can be some overlap, you know. If there's a if there's a a good example would be like a pipeline that's cut through the through the forest and they yeah. maintain this easement or something, you could have a pack on either side of that and and both utilizing that space. Uh, but at different times, you know, they're going to, they're going to work hard to avoid each other as much as possible. Re- real quick on the, before we keep going on, on the pack size, it's very interesting to me that, you know, you guys, y'all's typical pack size will be, you know, four adults, whereas out West it'll be six to eight. And you said that it's prey. Is that because of the, nutritional gain from each time they kill something that'll support the full, full pack or is it the ne- necessary uh legwork and muscle to actually take something like an elk down or maybe a little bit of both it's both it's both when you it's it's really interesting when you think about it right if you want to take down bigger prey the benefit there is there's more meat on the ground when you pull it down exactly yeah the downside is it's more dangerous and it takes more more help more more miles yeah. more feet and so there's this trade-off. Uh, we need more help, more individuals to pull down an elk. But once we got it down, we can feed more. You know, if we brought a pack of eight wolves to Wisconsin, they would probably really excel at taking down white-tailed deer. But once you get that deer on the ground, there's not enough to go around. And so it's this trade-off of of efficiency versus actually being able to support that many animals. That, that makes sense. You know, you, you translocate, you know, a pack of eight over there. It's just going to naturally work itself out to where, you know, we, yeah, we can hunt really effective together, but there's just not enough payoff in the end. So you're going to have to go find your own deal. And of course, that's going to cause, you know, rifts amongst the pack to where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm eating, you know, you go find your own food. Exactly. And our, our wolves are, are certainly capable of taking down elk. I mean, we, we do have some, we have a couple of elk herds in the state, a couple hundred animals apiece, and we do have some elk taken down by wolves each year, um, as well as, you know, on the on the domestic side, we see, you know, adult cattle, adult horses on occasion, things like that. Those are more rare. It's typically the calves and the younger animals that are taken down, but they're fully capable um, of taking down big animals. 
And that is one, uh, I don't know if polarizing is the right word, but one concern of maybe the public is wolves interacting with cattle and and actual, you know, domesticated uh, animals around there. So, you know, how prevalent is that within your state? Are they primarily only doing whitetails? And then if it just the opportunity presents itself, they may go, you know, take out a cow or, or two, but it's not like they're going to hone in on the cows for being a sustainable option? Will they just kind of kill a cow, take advantage of it, and then move back into the whitetail? Yeah. So what we see is most of our packs stay away from people. Most of them do not cause any, you know, depredations or conflicts of that nature, but some packs do. And once they start that behavior, they kind of learn, okay, hey, this is a, this is a a relatively easy uh, way to acquire food and they tend to continue doing it. Sometimes you can, uh, you know, if, if you react on the first time and, and redirect them, if you will, through some different abatement, non-lethal stuff, uh, sometimes that can kind of break the habit, if you will, before it starts. But uh, once they start, it's oftentimes hard to to turn them off from repeating the behavior. Um, you know, we see on average, some 25, 30 farms in the state impacted by wolves each year. And it, it can vary. Some farms get hit once and then they go years without being hit again. And then the next farm, it's it's almost an annual thing. And we could go down a long rabbit hole of what drives this with, you know, individual pack behavior. The breeding pair maybe has this behavior that they've learned and, and are teaching to the younger ones. And it can kind of continue this behavior um, as well as the landscape features, right? If you've got a pasture that's cut into the middle of, you know, surrounded by forest on all sides, and maybe this also just happens to be where three pack territories come together, and you've got three different packs taking advantage of this this resource, that's a place that's going to have what we call chronic conflict. It's going to be almost an annual thing. And uh, again, you could go down a, a long rabbit hole there, but to, to kind of sum it up, we we don't see widespread issues, but oftentimes um, some of the same farms continue to get hit. Um, but you know, the other side of that then is is it's very easy to focus on the actual verified conflicts and the number of animals and the number of farms. But there's there's significant impacts too to people's uh, psychology, if you will, right? Just just knowing that there's wolves out there and this could happen to me at any time could happen to my my livestock, my livelihood. And so there's there's some real costs, I think, some real impacts on that side of it too, which you know d- generally doesn't end up in any spreadsheets or graphs or anything. <laughs> um, but worth considering. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to quantify the psychological impact of of that and just kind of living with a large carnivore within your area that that is uh, so adept at, at honestly taking out what doing what they do killing i mean just killing and eating i mean that's that's what they're there to do uh i'm i'm curious like when when that happens you know i I know that every state is kind of a little bit different you know what is the process for a landowner are they getting reimbursed for that cattle are you guys gonna try and go move them off like you talked about or does it kind of kind of become a recurring enough uh ordeal to where maybe you do have to kind of take out some wolves or a pack in that specific area. Yeah. So what we have, so one of the the main, I guess, drivers of controversy controversy with wolves is the Endangered Species Act. In some parts of the country, they're federally protected. In some parts of the country, they're not. And in Wisconsin, the Great Lakes region, 
Um, they're currently under the federal protections of the ESA. And so we do not, as a state, have the ability for lethal control uh, unless it's a very specific case of like human health and safety, for example, maybe a wolf that's habituated in a campground, something like that, which is a rare event in itself. So what we have is a partnership with USDA Wildlife Services. Uh, we have hotlines that people can call. So I'm a producer that you know thinks I've got a wolf issue. I call the hotline. Uh, a trained biologist comes out. They take a look. They look for the sign, the tracks. If there's obviously a dead animal, they're going to skin that animal. They're going to look for the different signs that can differentiate it, you know, uh, wolf versus maybe a coyotes, maybe a, a disease, a natural cause of whatever. Um, but if a, if a verified wolf conflict occurs, we've got a number of different non-lethal tools, um, things like electric fencing, uh, something called fladry, which is uh, basically like little flags that flutter in the wind and are surprisingly effective at keeping wolves on, on the other side of the, the line. Different visuals, you know, flashing lights, you can have some auditory things, things like that. There's also a number of things you can do on the uh, husbandry side, right? Bring your cattle in at the end of the day, uh, calve up near the barn, things like that. Um, a number of different things. But uh, if and when wolves are delisted in the state, we also have the lethal tools. And those are on the table, in, especially in the case, like we talked about, of a of continuing conflict. If we've gone through all these non-lethal things, wolves eventually often become conditioned to them, and they learn to go around them, and, and they lose their effectiveness. And in those cases, removing those wolves off the landscape is oftentimes kind of the last resort, but also the last, last real option that is effective. Um, and in those cases, removing a pack off the landscape can be super effective and not only stopping the conflict in real time, but if a new pack moves in, maybe they don't pick up that behavior and you could go a number of years without additional conflict. Um, on the flip side, if you take out you know, a couple of those animals of the pack, maybe that helps, maybe it doesn't help, uh, and you can have some mixed results. So it's it's really situation specific as to what's most effective what's most likely to to you know prevent the conflict today but also hopefully prevent it long term um, and again we could do a whole show just on the, on the livestock conflict side but I'll try not to go too far down the rabbit hole right <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it, it, it's one of those that fascinates me so I could ask a million questions on that topic alone but uh, outside of just the depredation uh, of the wolves, you know, I, I'm sure that you guys get some kind of uh, response or, or input or backlash from from some locals, maybe on the uh, quote unquote impact, negative impact, perhaps on certain game populations and species. So outside of the white-tailed deer, which, you know, you guys are in Wisconsin, you guys have a very healthy and abundant white-tailed deer population. You know, it's just it's just one of one of the factors, you know, that's CWD is is prevalent up there from my understanding because of uh, of that that factor. Outside of the white-tailed deer, is there is there something that wolves will kind of key on? Will they key in on and try and do wild turkeys or maybe even rough grouse or is it just not really kind of worth their energy or effort to do it and and it's like they may do it if it presents itself, but they're just not going to really kind of seek out those that type of game. Yeah, they're they're opportunistic. You know, they'll take advantage of those different opportunities if they present themselves. But primarily, it's white-tailed deer. Um, beaver is probably second on the menu if they can get a hold of beaver. Yep. Um, you know, a turkey if they can get it. Uh, um, snowshoe hare uh, if they can get them. 
you know, those types of things. It, it, a lot of it depends on the time of year in the summer months. It's very interesting. You know, if, if you're a deer hunter, for example, you think through the, the, the year kind of in terms of white-tailed deer, right? Summer, they're doing great. They're fat and happy, but the wintertime is the limiting factor, especially in the North uh, where we're at probably more so than down South. Uh, you know, we see a lot of deer literally just starve to death over the winter months, especially if the forage is hard or if the winter is particularly hard. Uh, but on the predator side, particularly wolves, it's actually the opposite because they're living on the opposite kind of schedule from their prey. And what I mean is in the winter months, that's when they have the advantage. The snow cover, uh, the deer are run down, they're in poor nutritional condition, the does are pregnant, you know, later in the winter and, and really starting to carry. Um, so the the wolves, you know, are able to make a pretty good living in the wintertime, despite the conditions. Uh, but in the summertime, they're actually starving. They, they lose a significant amount of weight. Their ability to capture prey, particularly a white-tailed deer, really drops. You know, they can grab a, a beaver if they're, you know, if the opportunity arises. And some actually learn to key in on beaver. They'll sit by a run and, and wait. Um, uh, but but the summer months can be a really hard time for wolves. And so what we see is they'll turn to all these different alternative food sources, eating berries, for example. It's been well documented that they'll sit in blueberry patches and or plums or what have you and, and take advantage of those, not because they want to, but because they kind of have to. Um, and it, it's enough to keep them alive uh, until fall uh, comes around. Uh, hunter bear baits, very commonly wolves will take advantage of hunter bear baits. Now in Wisconsin, hunter bear baits cannot include animal byproducts. So they're not eating meat out of these baits as they might in some states. They're eating grains, uh, trail mixes, you know, whatever sweets and you know, baked goods basically that are in these, yeah, all, these, bear all baits. those fatty cakes that the bears <laughs> like, you know, all that sweet stuff exactly. and Twinkies and whatever other junk they put in there. Yep. They'll regularly take advantage of those. Again, it's, it's kind of a starvation food for them, but it keeps them alive until they get into the fall months. The pups become more mobile. They become more grown up. The pack starts to uh, move more cohesively together. And then the whole cycle starts over uh, as well as, you know, uh, when the fall comes, we've got hunting season and, and eventually you end up with gut piles and things like that from deer hunters in the woods. And uh, the, the scale starts to turn back in their favor, if you will. So you you mentioned earlier, the wolves kind of first and foremost, trying to avoid us. You know, that's kind of true with, a, with, I would say, probably the majority of large carnivores across the entire country, except, you know, maybe maybe even grizzly bears out West, you know, you, you surprise them. They may fight you a little bit quicker than uh, other large carnivores. But when it comes to us, obviously, you know, you just, you're, you're just going to happen upon them sometimes. It, it is what it is. We're going where they live. We're going into the woods where we're chasing birds with our dogs. And so to what extent do you think that the wolves, if they, see or hear us coming, do you think that they're just bowing out of there? Or do you think that they're just kind of hunkering down and just seeing what we do? Because like you said, they're very territorial. They have their home range. Are they going to leave their home range because we enter it? Or are they going to actually just sit there and maybe even protect it uh, if they feel like we're just kind of getting in too close? Yeah, good question. So, you know, their their home ranges, I don't know if I ever got to it. Their home ranges in our state average about 60 square miles. Some areas of the state, particularly down south, we've got many more deer, higher deer density, and they, it shrinks down to 20 or 30 square miles. Um, but still, we're talking about a pretty sizable piece of ground. And we've got a yeah. handful of wolves 
in this space, right? So they're covering all this ground, but at any given time, they're in one location or the other. Uh, and just like most wildlife, they spend 90% of their time in about 10% of their actual home range. So on any given moment, you're in wolf country, um, but they're very low density on the landscape. Um, now, if you walk in, you know, if you're walking down the, the road, grouse hunting, for example, you know, there's a really good chance you're in a wolf territory of some kind in this state. Um, but if they see you coming, if they hear you coming, they're not going to leave their territory. They're, you know, generally speaking, they're going to try to avoid you. So they might just hunker down. They might run away, whatever. Like they're not... Uh, they're not defensive against humans entering their territory. Let's put it that way. Now, sometimes you do hear these stories and, and you can see videos of, you know, you're going down the trail and, and you look ahead and there's a wolf on the trail. That wolf is looking at you and you're looking at it. And it can be kind of an unnerving event, right? <laughs> right. But in many times, this is actually more an act of curiosity from wolves than it is, you know, it, it's perceived by us often as kind of a, a stare down, if you will. But really, it's more of a curiosity. What the heck is that, you know, person doing out here? And that wolf is is running through their mental checklist of, is this a, a threat? Is this an opportunity? What is this? What's going on? And in that, you know, short time frame, they're sizing you up as much as you're sizing them up. Um, and then typically they're going to turn and, and run away. But but in those, you know, those moments, it can often be perceived as as uh, they're, you know, almost a threat. But really, it's more of an act of curiosity and trying to figure out what they want to do. Same thing you can hear a lot of times, uh, hunters uh, going into a deer stand or coming out of a deer stand or, or maybe walking down a trail. And, and in some cases, they can be almost surrounded by wolves. They can have a pack that comes in. And again, they'll almost, uh, I've heard stories, you know, they'll kind of almost escort you down the trail. And, and that's pretty unnerving. For sure, that's a very normal response, but they're not really looking at you as a as a food source by any means. They're really just trying to figure out what the heck is going on here, and and what should we do about it. Now, if you enter dogs into the mix, that can change things a little bit. Um, but we'll we'll get to that. I was about to say we're 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 going to get to that very very soon. But I want to stay on this to where let's assume that I'm just a foot hunter, where I'm out yes. there grouse hunting. I don't have a dog with me. It's just just me, all by myself. And there's a, and I happen upon that that pack of escorts you're just describing. Has there been examples or or stories of the wolves kind of taking it the next step to where maybe they're not just uh, uh, satisfied with escorting you or or kind of doing a distant heel from you? It's like yeah. <laughs> you know, do they kind of take it to the next level ever within the state? No, the short answer is no. We've never had a wolf on human attack in the state. Um, the number of wolf and human attacks in North America is, I think you could probably count them on one hand. It's very, very, very rare. It does happen, uh, and especially if you look internationally or even back in history, uh, it's more common. But in today's world, it's extremely, extremely rare. Um, you know, I can think of a case up in somewhere in remote northwest Canada, you know, a pack of wolves took down a jogger, you know, extremely rare, but that was a predatory attack. But again, we're talking about a handful of cases through a hundred years. It is just incredibly, incredibly rare. And, and I think that's important for people to understand because, you know, when you close your eyes and think of a wolf, it's very easy to picture, you know, a, a snarling wolf or some kind of danger, right? It's not a good thing. 
but the reality is is much different. We have hikers, we have campers, we have recreationalists of every kind, including tons and tons of bird hunters that are out in the woods, you know, every weekend through the fall and probably every weekend around the clock <laughs> for different, you know, different activities. And we just do not see that type of thing. Do you have any theories? And we don't have to go too deep into this because, you know, when you're just kind of throwing darts at a wall, you can kind of go a little far-fetched, but I'm just curious as somebody who obviously studies them on a, on a pretty consistent basis, what's your theories as to why they perhaps don't kind of take that next step? You know, if you're solo in the woods and there's a pack of wolves and that, and their predatory instincts are there, is it just because over generations and centuries of breeding, they, they've just never really developed that genetic uh, drive and that perceives us as food? Do you like, would that be probably the simplest way of looking at it? I think so. I think so. And you could expand that to black bear, to cougar, to all these other large carnivores, right? They don't see humans as a uh, source of food. Now, the, the flip side of that would be, for example, bear, uh, you know, you, you often hear a fed bear is a dead bear. Well, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. We're talking about a bear that has learned to associate humans with sources of food. And that can be literally feeding them or trash or what have you. And then those bears slowly become conditioned to being around people. And again, they start to associate people equals food. And that can escalate all the way to actually seeing people as a source of food. That is still the far end of that spectrum. Generally, any attacks that occur there are defensive in nature. Somebody lets the dog out and the bear attacks the dog defensively. Or somebody goes to get their mail and they turn around and there's a bear eating out of the bird feeder. And, and you know, there's a a, a real, oh, oh, you know what moment from both sides. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but so you, you can kind of see how it's a learned behavior and it has to progress all the way down this this long kind of road, if you will, to actually yeah. end up. You know, I, there's, there's one case of a wolf attack on a human I can think of from Minnesota. It may very well be the only one. And that was a young, uh, it had some kind of a facial deformity, like, and it was, it was in a bad way and it took advantage of a campground. People had started to see it hanging around, uh, I potentially started feeding it. I don't know if that was going on. I could certainly see it happening. Uh, and eventually it tried to take a bite at a kid, uh, that was sleeping in a tent. You know, the kid was fine, got scratched up. But here's a a really unique event that was driven by other factors that led to this situation. So again, yeah. you know, the other side of it too is if they've got ample wild prey, they don't need to come after people. They don't need to come after dogs or anything. And, and that's right. generally what we see is there's plenty of deer in the woods. There's plenty of other natural prey uh, that they would much rather go after. Yeah. But if they get hungry enough and, you know, habituated to, to easy meals, you know, not just from farmers, but I'm sure that you guys have instances in, in the state to where you have the crazies that'll feed the bears. And, and I'm sure you guys have crazies that'll go feed the feed the wolves and think that they're, you know, taking care of the wolves. It's their pet wolf, so to speak. They probably name it and everything, don't they? Yeah. I mean, those things do happen. I think probably the most dangerous uh situations we see are when people start to actually breed uh, dogs and these wolf dog hybrids and there's kind of a whole underground market right that goes on and and for the most part it's illegal um, but when you've got those semi-domesticated wolf dog hybrids in captivity they don't really know what they are people treat them like pets and that can be a recipe for disaster uh, 
you know, it's, it's not super common in itself, but I, I would say the threat for any type of wolf and human encounter in the state is more related to this, you know, the, the underground uh, wolf dog hybrid situations than anything in the wild. Well, speaking of pets and, and dogs, let's kind of go on and, and move into that direction because obviously, you know, as as us, the upland hunters, uh, I, I don't know the statistics, but I'd say at least the people that I converse with on a regular basis, they're hunting with their dogs. And, and so they're going to be in the woods with them. And, and this is something that I get asked. I got asked just a couple of days ago. Another listener reached out is how do you handle wolves? And and this comes up, you know, this time of year, I don't know, maybe once a week or so from from a concerned listener. And uh, it's it's a fair concern because if you, you don't know what you don't know. And I, I remember when I first started, I, I used to uh, be more concerned about it than what I am now. You know, once you kind of get educated on it or, or familiar with it, you just kind of get more comfortable with it. But at least when I first started, there was a, kind of an online log, so to speak, that you could look up the interactions or uh, depredation of the wolves within the state kind of by county. And you could kind of measure that against where you're headed uh, I'm assuming that that's still the case. I haven't looked in a few years. Like I said, you know, once you kind of look at at that the analytics or the statistics, uh, I should say, you kind of start recognizing the the concern really doesn't lie in part with bird dogs. If there is an inter- interaction with dogs and wolves, more often than not, you're talking about the hound hunters and the houndsmen. But uh, is that still kind of available for people if they were interested in going to kind of look and research in the area they're going to travel and hunt in? Yep, absolutely. So speaking for Wisconsin, on our website, we've got a ton of different guidance and and it'll rehash a lot of the stuff we talk about here today about, uh, you know, hunting uh, or even recreating with pets, what have you, uh, in wolf country. Uh, one of the things we have is a, an interactive map that is updated basically in real time, and it shows the locations of verified wolf conflicts, whether that's hunting dogs, whether that's livestock, whether it's pets. And that can be a really powerful tool, especially for for uh, really any hunters or dog hunters, um, but especially those that are not familiar with your area, right? If you're traveling in from out of state or what have you, uh, it's very hard to to know kind of that local area. So you can pull open that map, take a look. Okay, here's where conflict has occurred. Here's where it hasn't occurred. Uh, and it can give you some some real good, you know, starting points, if you will, for, for avoiding some of those areas. Um, I know Michigan has something very similar. I'm not sure if Minnesota does, but there's definitely resources on there to help uh, just kind of share awareness. That's really what a lot of it comes down to is educating yourself and and like you mentioned, kind of researching the ins and outs of this, what can you do, uh, as well as just where wolves are in a particular area. And, you know, again, it's been a few years since I looked at it, but I mean, if you go and actually check out that map, and I, I'm going to put a link to that map in in the description now that you said that it, it's still active. Great. So anybody that's curious, they can go look at it. One thing that's, again, really eye-opening is just how often, if there is a conflict with dogs, nine times out of 10, at least it seems like it's going to be hound related. Yeah. And is that really just because hounds are typically further away from their humans? Maybe, maybe they run a little, uh, more silent. They're not, you know, they don't have the bells, which, you know, of course we're going to talk about that here in a little while as well. Uh, they're just, they're just not making as much noise. Uh, is it just because that they're that much further away from their owners and handlers that they're going to get kind of get picked off more? 
Yeah, that's a big part of it for sure. So for context, we've got tons of rough grouse hunting. We've got lots of pheasant down south in particular, um, but we also have a ton of bear hunting activity, bear training activity, folks running coyotes with hound dogs, bobcats with hound dogs. We have a very active hunting with dogs culture in this state, including visitors from from all over. Um, and what we see with the hunting dog conflict and wolves is some 90, maybe 95% of those conflicts is with the hound hunting dogs. Uh, and in particular, the bear hunting dogs. Now, why is this? You've kind of touched on some already. In general, uh, if you've got hounds chasing a bear, you know, those dogs in today's world, most of those are wearing GPS collars and they're a mile, maybe two miles away from the handlers. And, uh, you know, as they're moving across the landscape in pursuit of that bear, they're barking, they're doing their thing, but there's really no human influence at that point. Now, if you look at it from the wolf's perspective, they're hearing a barking dog or many times multiple barking dogs and they're they're running they're you know they're moving through this landscape and wolves are picking up on that as a threat they're picking it up as an intruding canine no different than a, a wolf would be running through barking its head off or or a coyote running through barking its head off and that's what ultimately drives many of these uh these encounters these conflicts they, you know, they'll they'll obviously go find the dogs, and they'll, in their mind, neutralize this this threat, this intruder, and that can very easily mean a dead dog or a severely injured dog or multiple. Um, but the flip side of that then is, you know, folks going after upland birds, rough grouse, etc. Obviously, you're much closer to your dogs. You're within a few hundred yards, probably at the most, um, and you know, there's just a much stronger human influence there. And generally speaking, you're also more on trails and things like that. Whereas those hound dogs are, you know, sometimes a mile off the nearest road. They're in the back country. So there's some, some key differences right there for sure. And, and it's just interesting, you know, like you said, it's, it's kind of like the dogs would probably, the hounds would probably get away with more if, if they were silent, but that's not what hounds do, right? Like we need them voicing on game. So we kind of know where they're at. Uh, but that's going to, I'm curious about like when the packs kind of intersect with the, the pack of hounds, let's assume, you know, pack of four, like we're talking about what you guys generally have up there and you have a pack of hounds chasing uh, a, a bear up, up a tree or whatever. If how often, if the pack of hounds, if they just leave, will the wolves pursue them? Will they chase them down and kill them and, and, and fight them? Or generally, like if the dogs just kind of turn around and leave well enough alone, the wolves will just be like, okay, they're leaving. We're, we're good to go. Yeah. It's, I think generally there's, there's some level of pursuit involved, right? The dogs are chasing a bear. The wolves become aware of this and they chase the dogs and, in some some form or fashion, right, they intersect. It could also be where the bear leads them towards wolves, which are are sitting at a location, and the dogs run into it, and there is no pursuit. Um, but you know, th- there can be different ways it plays out. Um, but generally, if the wolves are, I think, going after them, um, you know, they're they're not going to try to run them to the edge of a territory necessarily. And, and well, that actually, I, I take that back. That might be a scenario that plays out depending on where that edge of that territory is. If those dogs are cutting through a corner of the territory of a pack, 
uh, and and then exiting, you know, maybe that would be enough to to get those wolves to back off. But the fact is, it is it it can play out in a number of different ways, and it's not something that's been studied terribly hard. So it's hard to really say what these typically look like. What I will say is one of the other reasons that it uh, typically occurs on bear hounds uh, is the time of year. So. In Wisconsin, you can train dogs on bears during the month of July and August, and then we have the bear hunting season, which is September and into October. So we've got about four months here uh, where there's lots of hounds in the woods going after bear. This also happens to overlap almost entirely with the summer pup rearing season. So pups are born in the spring. Uh, By early summer, they've moved off to what are called rendezvous sites. Rendezvous sites are these locations throughout a pack's territory uh, where they they leave the pups behind. The pups are, you know, at this point, they're 20 pounds, they're little guys. And the pack, the adults, any helpers, they go off and largely are hunting on their own. They're doing their own thing, bringing food back to those pups. Um, But as you can imagine, the wolves are extremely defensive of these sites and of these pups. And they can have a number of different rendezvous sites throughout their territory, just depending on you know, the day basically. Um, And so if you have hounds that are running into or near one of these rendezvous sites, that is the recipe uh, for a very defensive, again, uh, a a defensive attack to neutralize this threat. I mean, that is generally what's going on. Flip side, you've got bird hunters, you know, hunting in, let's say October, November, or coyotes through the winter months, bobcats through the winter months up here. Uh, the pups by that time of the year are basically adult sized and they're functioning as part of the pack. So there's a different behavioral dynamic going on, which leads to uh, many, 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 many fewer incidences of hunting dog conflict in those times of the year. So we yeah. unfortunately have this perfect overlap of the the hunting scenario of hounds barking far away from humans overlapping with this time of the year where they're rearing pups. And you put those two things together and that's that's the source of 95% of our conflict. Is, is there something that stands out to you in terms of what what makes up a good uh, rendezvous site? You know, is there a structure or feature, you know, water source, cave, den, something like that to where if you're going through, you know, maybe you see some sign or droppings or something like that, but you look down at your onyx and, and you're like, oh, this this could you know spell spell trouble. Let's let's backtrack out of here real yeah. quick. Is there something that stands out to you to where if you look at a map, you can say that would be a good rendezvous site for uh, for a pack of wolves raising pups? Yeah, yeah, for sure. They they tend to place these rendezvous sites near water, so it's often near a creek, near a bog, or some kind of wetland feature. That has, you know, it can be sedge, it can be grass. Um, usually, it's in some kind of an aspen stand. So they're looking for basically two things: they're looking for a water supply nearby, uh, as well as visual security. They want the pups kind of placed and, and hidden, if you will. But if you walk into one of these rendezvous sites, you'll find lots of trails through the grass. You'll find lots of tracks, obviously, big tracks and little tracks, lots of scat, lots of matted down vegetation. I mean, these pups are pretty rambunctious at the actual site, but they tend not to leave it. It's the adults that are going out, you know, getting food, bringing it back and and sharing it with the pups. So, you know, if you're largely in some kind of an upland area away from water, you're very likely to not run into any kind of a 
of a uh, rendezvous site in those locations. Um, now that said, there's a ton of those locations on the landscape, and not every one is a rendezvous site. Um, yeah. But when you find one, you'll know it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you look at the map, and especially you know the lowland, the boggy areas. It's you know the, there's water sources all over the place up there yeah. when when you get up there. Yeah. So uh, circling back to let's say you know there's there's a conflict. The for whatever reason, hounds, bird dogs, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the the wolves are on the dog. Me as the handler, whether I'm a houndsman or bird guy, and I come up and and there's a pack of wolves and and they're going at the dog and you know maybe the dog's standing its ground or the pack is. What are the options for me as an owner? I mean, I kind of know what I'm probably going to be doing trying to get my dog out of that mm-hmm. situation. But legally speaking, you talked about the the ESA, the Endangered Species Act. Uh, you know, what are the repercussions? What what are our options? as dog owners to try and uh, correct the situation. Yeah, that's that's where things get really tough. Uh, in Wisconsin, as well as our neighboring states and most of the lower 48 states, wolves are federally uh, protected. And so in that situation you described, it is a federal offense to shoot or kill uh, one of those wolves. Uh, we can debate the merits of that all day long, um, but that's, that's the legal, the current legal situation. So you know, obviously you can get in there and try to scare them off. You can shoot, you know, in a different direction to try to scare them off. Um, and, and this does actually play out uh, in many cases of these uh, hound conflicts. You know, the 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 GPS will mark treed. And sometimes that's not a, if you've got three dogs out, for example, and two continue on the chase and you've got one that marks treed and doesn't move anymore. Yeah. That's a bad spot. So a lot of these guys will run in there, uh, guys and girls um, run in there and they'll find a dead dog. Bad deal. Um, sometimes they'll enter this spot and the conflict is still occurring. They might have multiple dogs, what have you, but the wolves can be right there 30 yards away. And the wolves are so keyed in on the dogs. It can be very hard to get them out of there. I mean, obviously the best thing you can probably do is try to leash those dogs right away. If possible, scare those wolves off, do all you can. Um, But it can be a very, very tough situation. So, you know, worst case scenario, uh, we're going out. My dog is, uh, you know, surrounded by the pack, they're they're doing what they're they're doing, and I and I come up and to protect my dog and get it out of the situation, I, I shoot one of the wolves. I'm I am then going to be getting into trouble for for shooting that wolf. That's the current situation. Yep, yep. Now, yeah. So if wolves are delisted again in the future, uh, we have some state law here in the state that allows you to shoot them if they're in the act of depredating on private land. It does not extend to public land. Really? And again, and again, we can debate the merits of that all day long. Um, what we do have is there is financial compensation uh, as well as that's for livestock and hunting dogs. But uh, there's no there's no dollar figure that can that can cover the loss of a hunting dog, especially if you're watching it in front of you. Now, again, I want to reiterate, this is not the standard situation that people find themselves right. in. This is very rare, but it does happen. And it's and it's extremely uh, it's a tough situation. It's a very tough situation. The better uh, medicine, if you will, is the prevention. Right. If yeah. you do this long enough, it's going to happen to many people. That's just the reality of it. I've talked to a number of them. You know, they've they've run their hounds, their dogs, what have you, for ten years. They've tried everything they can to prevent it, and then one year it happens, and it sucks. Um, but again, more often than not, it doesn't happen. And so, 
the the best approach is this preventative approach. Well, what can you do? Obviously, one of the first things you can do is check the map. Where has conflict occurred in this year? And try to avoid those areas. Where has it occurred in past years? Many times there can be a pattern, you know, especially in the last couple of years, if there's a pack that has shown a tendency to attack dogs, uh, it can continue for a number of years. Um, so trying to avoid those areas, but even in areas where there's not a verified conflict, you know, you don't want to release your dogs if you can help it anywhere where there's like super fresh wolf sign. You know, so before you uh, turn out for the day, if you can drive up and down those roads, look for fresh sign, look for fresh tracks, fresh poop, uh, anything like that, that can be, you know, really to your advantage. Um, if you're a bear hunter in particular, you know, like I mentioned earlier, wolves find these bear baits and, and they'll definitely take advantage of them. And so if you've got fresh wolf activity on a bear bait, that's a really good one not to release on. Um, if you can try to find these spaces and, and operate, you know, where the wolves aren't, uh, you can, you can, you know, have, you can minimize the risk. We'll put it that way. Um, some other things, you know, uh, try to only release on, you know, fresher sign, fresher sign in the case of bear or coyote or, or, or bobcat is more likely to have a shorter chase. Uh, and that can obviously help, um, you know, running cameras on baits is something that I would recommend to try to, uh, again, keep a better eye on our wolves hitting this bait and, and if they are, how recently have they been in here? Things like that. Um, you know, when we're talking about these rendezvous sites and locations of conflict, well, how far do you have to go away to, to stay away? And really, if you can stay just a couple of miles away, uh, your, your odds of, of an issue drop significantly, right? Now, again, some of these, these chases can take, you know, they can run two, three miles and, and, and you're back to back to a bad deal. Um, but there are a number of things that you can do to really minimize the risk. And we have a lot of folks that, that have learned these things and are fairly successful at, again, minimizing the risk and avoiding these issues. Um, but you can never reduce it to zero. Uh, and, and that's kind of the hard reality that I think a lot of people are, are having to come to terms with. Uh, and so on the state side, you know, we try to share these, these tips, these, this awareness, um, but you can never reduce it to zero. And it's just, uh, like so many other things in life, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. And it, it's just, 100%. It, it's one of those things, you know, it's like, I, I know people listening to this, they're, they're, they're probably envisioning the scenario in their head. Now, what do I do if I come upon a wolf, uh, attacking my dog and it's kind of, uh, yeah, it it, it kind of makes you question, like what what would you do, especially with that kind of uh, repercussions coming your way. I kind of know where where I stand on that, but that would be an interesting, like you said, debate uh, on the merits of it. But I mean, even with with the them being delisted and it only applying to private ground, that's that's an interesting factor in of itself. So even just you know, because that that's where my head first went. I'm sure that's probably why you said it is. It's like just another reason of why, you know, they they should still, you know, be delisted in my personal opinion for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in line with the prevention aspect, you know, th there's a couple things that people swear by or say they, they try and claim that it doesn't help or, or does help. And one of which is like the tracking bell. And, you, you know, this is something that I heard. This was one of the first things that I heard when I entered the gundog world, my, my short hair breeder. He was of the mind that 
you know, you talk about when you're going to go run in wolf country, it's advisable to put a bell on your dog's collar and it should, you know, notify the wolves and give them a chance to get out of Dodge, so to speak. But then uh, when it comes to like my, my breeder, and I've heard it from numerous other people since then is the tracking bells no longer work with wolves according to them, that it's more of a dinner bell and it, and it's telling them that they're in the area that they can come get a quote unquote free meal, so to speak with your dog. Where, where's your thought press process on that is a tracking bell, a preventative me measure, or can it kind of, have they built up an association to where they understand what that bell truly means? Yeah. I don't think there's any evidence, at least not that I'm aware of or experience uh, that they're learning to associate bells with a free meal, if you will. And this is a good thing. Um, again, as we've talked about, this is a behavioral response to intruding canines. And they actually do sometimes consume part of these dogs that they kill. And that's a fascinating thing in itself, right? Why would you uh, do that if it's not food driven? Um, but the reality is they're not killing these dogs for food. Um, it's a it's a defensive behavioral again an intruder that's what they're seeing it as so in that case you know the bell on there if they can associate that bell with people uh, you know there might be some benefits there um, but in the case of hounds a couple of miles away from a handler you know those hounds are barking the whole time I don't think a bell is going to do much in those cases yeah. I, I don't it's probably one of those things where it doesn't hurt um, but I don't think it's going to be super effective either. I know we've had experiences both ways. Some people uh, will use them and, and uh, you know, think they're beneficial. And we've also had dogs lost while wearing bells. Um, but when you're talking more about the upland hunters or dogs that are closer to you, I think their value goes up um, because it's, again, as the handler, you're closer. As the hunter, as the human, you're closer and you've got this dog that's, especially if it's bird hunting, right? It's not barking. It's not making near as much noise. And now you're helping communicate to those wolves and everything else, coyotes, bears, what have you, that, hey, this is a, a human dog. This is a, this is a human situation. This is not a natural canine doing its thing. Uh, and I think there could be some benefits there for sure. It, it, it's interesting to think, you know, I've never really spoken to a houndsman. I don't know if you're aware of one that for this very region, it, uh, maybe they put some stock into it. Maybe they put bells on their hound dogs, so to speak. But, you know, it, again, if, if the dogs are barking and, and baying and, and running through the home territory, I, I doubt a bell's going to prevent that response from happening. But I'm just curious if there's a houndsman that you're aware of that just runs it just, just to, you know, if it helps 5%, maybe it helps 5%. Right. Yeah. No, I don't personally know of any that run them. Um, but I'd be curious to talk to one too, because like I said, it's one of those things that probably can't, can't hurt. Um, but I think in the case of hounds baying and barking, it's, I just don't think it's going to amount to much. Uh, an another thing that you kind of hear about in some stories or, or folklore sometimes, you know, is the, uh, the concept of the decoy wolf, uh, you know, uh, one kind of luring a dog in just to be ambushed by the rest of the pack. I know, uh, again, reading, uh, in the past certain things about coyotes, I know that they'll, they'll kind of do this with certain different, uh, prey options and stuff like that. But is this something that wolves 
will uh, implement as well. And is this has have you read or heard of anything that of them doing this potentially to a dog to where they're going to lure the dog into them and then take you know dispatch them? Not something that we commonly see or hear or think about. Um, no, I think because you know again, particularly in the case of of hounds on a bear, they're pretty focused in on that bear for the most part. And I think they can run right into uh, a group of wolves and maybe not even realize it because of what's going on. Uh, you know, they're, they're keyed in on that bear. And so the idea of, of wolves kind of luring them in to, to break away the chase, I, I don't put a lot of stock into it myself. Um, but at the same time, they're very smart animals, right? They're very smart animals. We do see, you know, when we talk about shift gears a little bit to like pets, for example, we see occasionally handful a year of uh, wolves killing pets or injuring pets or harassing pets in backyards, things like that. And there you might have some different interactions, um, but typically those are more food driven. They're looking at that as a, as a meal versus again, with the hunting dogs, particularly the hounds, it's more of this invading threat. Uh, and so the, the wolves are in a different mindset uh, with the hunting dog situations. And when we bring it back to bird hunters, grouse hunters, et cetera, I mean, you're, again, you're, you're closer, uh, you're making more noise. It's a, oftentimes it's a different time of year. And so if you do encounter wolves, you don't quite get that strong behavioral uh, response, that defensive response to the pups, because generally speaking, you're kind of past that point. Um, now they can, and we've had a, a handful of uh, situations where, you know, the wolves still see that dog and, and they can surround that dog, um, potentially attack the dog. Uh, but it's, it's so much more rare. Uh, and in those cases, you know, I've, I've talked to one individual that was grouse hunting and found himself in this exact situation. Uh, I think it just happened to be a, a bad coincidence of walking into, maybe they had a fresh kill nearby uh, or what have you, but you know, the dog kind of, the, the dog attracts the wolves attention and and you can be there as the hunter and they largely just don't pay attention to you. Uh, and with enough yelling and, and shooting, uh, you know, away from the wolves, uh, he was able to scare them off. And I think the dog suffered a couple of injuries, but, but was okay. So again, it's a very different response um, than what you see away from humans and, and during that bear season. Well, as we kind of start circling around and, and wrapping this up, you know, it, there's something I, I doubt there's anything here, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious to get your perspective. Is there any kind of disease or concern within the wolf population that, you know, us as dog owners or pet owners, you know, might it might be worth kind of knowing about, you know, I, I can't really picture or imagine anything outside of something that maybe the coyotes or, or foxes or some other canine would have. But is there something that that y'all, you guys have seen or noticed within the wolves that is worth noting? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It, it, there's, there's nothing that wolves carry exclusively or specifically that, you know, dogs would pick up from wolves. It actually generally goes the other way around with wolves picking up things from domestic dogs. Um, but, you know, when we've done blood work on wolves in the state, they're basically exposed to everything you'd expect them to be exposed to. And we don't see widespread disease issues or anything like that. Um, in the earlier years, back in the 80s and 90s, we did have some canine parvovirus outbreaks that particularly impact pups. And it can have like some pretty severe consequences for for these small populations. But for the most part, disease is, is pretty far down the list um, on the wolf side. And, and from the other side, bringing dogs into wolf country, uh, nothing you're going to pick up, you know, that you couldn't 
pick up from from coyotes or fox or any other number of wild animals. Right. So your typical vaccines and, and preventions, uh, all you got to think about. Is it, I mean, have you seen any uh, any sign of wolves possibly figuring out a way to take care of those pesky uh, porcupines for us so that we can stop running into them <laughs> while we're hunting? <laughs> Uh, no, I would say cougars are actually much better at that cougar and fisher, uh, which we've got a few fishers, but, uh, yeah, wolves, uh, I think stay away from, for the most part. Yeah. Well, we, we can keep wishing. Maybe they'll, they'll figure that out one of these days or one of these decades. I'm telling you, cougar, cougar figure it out. Cougar yeah. are quite, uh, efficient actually at taking out porcupines, uh, which is incredible when you think about it. And I would love to watch that, that, uh, I assume very slow motion uh, yeah, right. <laughs> event play out. Very deliberate. <laughs> Let me roll you over before I. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's really exactly. interesting. Is is there anything else? I mean, we kind of touch on a whole lot. Like you said, there's a there's a number of these topics that we could have gone down a, a rabbit hole for an episode all in a, of itself. But is there something that we didn't touch on that is worth touching on now? Yeah, good question. I mean. You could you could talk about different facets a long time, but I want to make sure I don't give the impression that wolves are killing dogs regularly or hunters should avoid Wisconsin. That is very much the opposite of the, the you know the real situation, if you will. I take my dog in the woods all the time. He's not a hunter, but we go on walks. Um, you know, I'm out in the woods by myself, deer hunting, grouse hunting, what have you, all the time. And we're doing research on these animals, literally trying to find them and catch them. Sometimes we're around dens, uh, you name it. And the reality of the situation is wolves, for the most part, want nothing to do with people. Uh, they know what, you know, oftentimes people equal uh, bad news for these wolves. And so uh, bird hunters, I think, should just be aware of the reality of you know, there's wolves in the woods. You might find their tracks on the trail. You might find their scat on the trail, but, you know, keep your dog close, make some noise as you go through the woods. Um, be aware, you know, if you come upon extremely fresh wolf uh, scat, for example, on some trail, maybe you play it safe and go the other way. Um, but I don't want to paint the picture that it's, it's unsafe to be in the woods up here. That is just completely the opposite. Um, that yeah. said, these things do happen and they're really, really impactful for those hunters that lose these dogs. I feel for them. I talk with them and, and we're, we're taking some steps here and there to try to, you know, a lot of it really is in the preventative side and making people aware. Um, and the rest of that I think comes with time. Um, but again, I don't want to turn people away from, from coming to Wisconsin or really anywhere with wolves. I think, you just yeah. got to kind of get the context of the situation, understand the risks and and balance them out with, with everything else. Porcupines is a great example, right? You can lose a dog to porcupine. Right. I mean, hate to say it, but it can happen um, to bears, to any number of things. So you kind of put this into, into perspective with the rest of the things that you're thinking about and dealing with and, and trying to minimize those risks along the way uh, and, and, and go on with what you're doing. Well, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, we part of the part of the appeal of doing what we do is getting out into wild places with your dog and interacting with wildlife. And there is, you know, they've historically been there. They left. They're back now. They have a place on the landscape. And it, you know, I'm not for eradicating them by any means. I I personally enjoy kind of hunting different areas with with different species such as wolves and bears and stuff like it, it, it just, it's a different feel, especially if you don't live in an area with some of those species, 
uh, it just feels different. And, and, you know, I've been going up to Wisconsin a handful of years uh, for the past decade and, you know, very small sample size, but I've, I've only heard them howling once, never seen them. And it's a small sample size, but you know, it's, it, it is extremely rare, just like in everything you're going to have inherent risk, no matter where you're going, because you're going out into nature and, uh, you just can't let it keep your, keep you on the couch. I mean, like you just said, you try and find them and you have a hard time <laughs> trying to find 100%. them. So, you know, sometimes you just have bad luck and, and that's part of it. And, uh, if you let every, every concern over the safety of your dog kind of keep you in, well, you have a, a more likely chance of, of killing your dog in a car wreck on the way to hunting than I, I would, you know, suspect 100%. that a wolf pr- brings. So, you yes. know, kind of put it in perspective uh, they're out there, but like you said, just kind of be be aware and, and cognizant the fact that they are out there. And if you see if you see the scat and droppings, you know, it, just kind of operate with the information that that the woods are giving you. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of sum it up and put it back into perspective, Wisconsin has probably the greatest overlap of a wolf population and people. What I'm saying is, there's probably not a pack in the state that doesn't have a road of some kind through it. And so if there was going to be significant conflicts with wolves and people, wolves and dog, like this might very well be the place. And we've got our share, no question, but not nearly to the extent that, you know, it's very easy to picture in your mind or conjure up in your mind. And so again, thousands of people in the woods every day, hundreds of dogs hunting all the time. And we see we see the conflicts a few dozen a year, um, but when you put it into perspective, I mean it's it's actually represents a very small number uh, when you think about all the opportunities there are for for dogs and wolves or people and wolves to to interact out there. So really important to try to get that context, and then like you said, make some good decisions and minimize those risks, and go out there and do what you love. Absolutely. Randy, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day, kind of catching us uh, bird dog junkies up on wolves. You know, it, it's a topic that, you know, obviously has some overlap and, and interest from from people for rightful reasons. But uh, I, I always err on the side of educate yourself a little bit more on the topic. And, and if you're if you determine that it's not worth the risk, then that's that's your prerogative. But uh, at the end of the day, I find the more information on certain subjects such as this, I feel a little bit more safer or secure in the odds of something bad happening. But to your point, it still happens from time to time. So just kind of be prepared and and work with work with that knowledge, however you choose to to do it. Absolutely. Best tool you got is the thing between your ears. (laughs) (laughs) there you go uh well absolutely again i enjoyed it everybody stay tuned for the outro randy we'll uh we'll we'll circle back and uh, do this again sometime sounds good thanks for the invite i appreciate it all right everybody hope you enjoyed that episode on wolves with randy johnson this was presented by standing stone supply dt systems onyx hunt final rise and upland gun company uh, for obvious reasons, I want to kind of break down or educate a little bit more on the topic of wolves, just like uh, I did on snakes a few weeks ago, because this is one of those common occurrences or concerns, I should say, to where people are constantly writing in and asking how concerned should they be over wolves. And so I uh, thought it would be a fun and interesting episode to kind of just go down the list and and talk about it from a uh, a very general and broad topic uh, as it relates to Wisconsin specifically in this episode, but the Northwoods overall, it's 
is uh it's an interesting topic especially for people that aren't familiar or at least uh around and live live around wolves on a regular basis it's uh you know for those of us coming up from the south or different regions in the in the country it's uh it's it's going to strike each person a little different with how much concern they want to give it. And then uh, I know my buddy Nick Larson over at the Birdshot Podcast, he just did last week an episode on uh, a few encounters that people have had with wolves while out hunting and stuff like that. So if you want even more wolf content and you haven't checked that episode out by him, by all means, go check him out and uh, at the Birdshot Podcast and uh, give that a listen and yeah, it's uh, it was a lot of fun, kind of covering a different topic, as I always have fun and uh, hitting those fringe topics. But uh, let me know what you think. Let me know if you enjoy these type of episodes where we kind of step out of quote unquote the uh, bird dog specific field or the bird dog training stuff and and kind of touch on a little bit more overarching topics. But with that being said, I'm not going to keep you long on this outro this week. If you enjoy the podcast, if you want to contribute and see the podcast continue to grow and new content, new types of content coming out, then by all means, please consider donating or uh, contributing to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. And that'll get you access to certain certain additional uh, content such as bonus episodes. Uh, I do monthly bonus check-ins with Nick Larson over the Bird Shop podcast. I do the video episodes of the profile episodes that people seem to to really enjoy those when I stick those up. So uh, yeah, by all means, check that out. It really means a lot. Any kind of voluntary contribution to that means the world to us. And uh, we wouldn't be here without the help of our Patreon patrons. So please consider signing up for that if you haven't already. And with that being said, I know it's hunting season. I know you all have uh, something better to do than keep uh, listening to me plug a whole bunch of different things. I just appreciate you as always for hitting download and play in the first place. It means the world to me. And uh, we'll check back on the next episode. Thanks, guys. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.